from Cafe. Welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. If there weren't something deeply flawed in the way things were going for the last 30 or 40 years, a presidency like the one we're living in now would not even be possible. And you wouldn't have had so many people in areas like mine walking into the voting booth with eyes wide open, with no illusions about this guy's character, and uh, consciously voting to burn the house down. That's Pete Buttigieg. He's the so-called millennial mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and a possible Democratic candidate for the 2020 presidential campaign. I speak with him about winning in red states, the crowded Democratic field, and why the Washington Post called him the most interesting mayor you've never heard of. But first, let's get to your questions. This Twitter question comes from Brian Donnelly, who says, A bunch of requests for documents just dropped from the House Judiciary. Are these mandatory? Would a subpoena elevate noncompliance to being contempt of Congress? Can you send me a signed copy of Doing Justice? Hashtag shoot your shot. Hashtag ask pre. Well, with respect to the last question, there's good news. You can get a signed copy of Doing Justice uh, or an unsigned copy of Doing Justice or the audio book uh, or the ebook. Go to cafe.com slash book and you'll see all the options. So Ann Milgram and I discussed this a little bit on the Insider podcast. And based on what Jerry Nadler said, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, said on the Sunday morning talk show he was on that they were going to be issuing 60 requests for information. It turns out that he issued 81. His initial avalanche of information-seeking documents are not mandatory. They're requests for information. It's a large number. They can fight that out. At some point, if he's not getting cooperation and there's no accommodation that can be reached with the various folks from whom he's seeking information, the committee is seeking information, they can choose to issue subpoenas. Now, there's a good reason why generally in litigation and also in congressional investigations, you start nice and then you move up to something more mandatory. And that's to show ultimately that you're being reasonable, that you're being measured. I think it puts you in good stead later if you have to have a fight over it. And there are arguments that you were seeking to be compulsory prematurely. It doesn't look as heavy handed. And look, there may be lots of folks among the 81 who are pleased to cooperate and provide information and some who are going to fight to the death. And before you know which is which, depending on various interests that they might have, I think it makes a lot of sense to initially play nice and ask for general information through a voluntary document request. There are a couple of other issues that arise from this massive disclosure of 81 requests for information. One is, why not wait till the Mueller report has been provided and see if it becomes public? And that would provide something of a roadmap for Congress to look into various things that Mueller drew conclusions on or maybe left aside. And I think there's there's some value in that view. And I think optically, it might have seemed to make a little bit more sense. But on the other hand, we don't know when the Mueller report is coming. All these breathless reports that it's about to be submitted to the AG, now, I think a week or two ago, have turned out to be wrong. I don't know when it's going to come out. Maybe it'll be some months. Maybe it'll be longer. Maybe it will never be made public. We just don't know the answers to those questions. And meanwhile, if you're the chair of the Judiciary Committee and you have limited time, and there has been no oversight at all, during the time that the Republicans were in charge of the Judiciary Committee, you might think to yourself, I'm not going to do anything to impede the Mueller investigation. I'm not going to actually take actions or do things that might interfere in any way with what either the SDNY is doing or that the special counsel's office is doing, but I want to get the ball rolling. It will take some time for the 81 recipients of these requests for information to digest them, think about what their posture is going to be, collect the information, decide that they want to narrow the the request for information, haggle over them, negotiate, see what accommodation can be reached. That's going to take some weeks, if not longer. And with, with some folks, it could take months. So from his perspective, Jerry Nadler's perspective, I suppose he was thinking, why don't, why don't I start? And why don't I make it clear to the world that I care about these things and we're going to be looking very hard at a lot of different items. And we'll see what happens when we get responses and we'll see what kinds of hearings make sense to have once we have some documents in place. But because these kinds of things take a long time to get rolling, why not start now? Must have been his thinking. And there's logic to that also. The other mild criticism that has arisen is, you know, why 81 all at once? Why not proceed a little bit more cautiously, a little bit more deliberately with a few requests at a time and sort of build up a case so that you don't unduly submit yourself to the accusation that you're engaging in a fishing expedition. Now, I think there's lots of things to investigate. I haven't poured over all of the 81 requests 
one by one. But, you know, there's an argument to be made that maybe a few requests now and a drumbeat of them over a period of time might have been more effective and might have shielded the Judiciary Committee chairman from some criticism. But I'm of mixed mind on this. I think it made sense to do what he's doing. This does not mean that he's going to immediately have 35 hearings on things that are going to be problematic and that are not baked. It's an initial request for basic information on things that I think a lot of people understand are worthy of inquiry, and that's that. I understand the political argument, but I also understand why he did what he did. I'll say that it is interesting that he has all these requests for information. They're about things that could constitute ultimately impeachable offenses. But Jerry Nadler steadfastly says again and again, he's not thinking about impeachment. He's just trying to get the facts. And we don't have the Mueller report yet. So, you know, there, there is a little disconnect between action and word. That's a little bit due to what the political situation is. You know, the Democrats want to be very careful not to overreach. There's lots and lots of folks who are saying we need to investigate, we need to engage in oversight. There have been abuses of power. Obstruction seems to have been demonstrated. You know, those are all things that lead you to think, well, okay, impeachment makes sense, but they're not using the I word because they're afraid of it a little bit based on what happened in 1998 with Bill Clinton. So we'll see. So one of the other big bits of news in the past week is the story that over the objection of John Kelly and the career national security folks, Donald Trump ordered that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, be given a top-level security clearance. Lots of people have made the point that, you know, so what? He had the full authority to give anyone he wants a security clearance. And as I've said many times before in different contexts, the fact that someone has the authority to do something does not end the debate. It begins the debate. There are lots of things that a president has the authority to do. People have used kind of outlandish examples, like the president has the authority to launch a nuclear strike against Canada. That would be immensely stupid. The example I've used is the president has the authority to hire only the dumbest people on earth. Some might say that he's he's done some of that, but he could literally announce that he's not hiring anyone for any office in the land in the government with an IQ over 90. That also he has the absolute authority to do. It doesn't violate anyone's rights, but it would be immensely stupid. And in this regard, too, the idea that someone like Jared Kushner, who had so many problems with filling out his financial documentation with entanglements with foreign folks that they, I think, have not gotten fully to the bottom of, and then most explosively, if you believe the leaked information, their intelligence community intercepts that suggest that foreign powers were basically salivating over the idea that they could manipulate Jared Kushner because of all the problems he has. These are all red flags in connection with a security clearance. And the idea that Donald Trump, it's bad enough that he has this sort of nepotistic tendency to have his daughter and his son-in-law, who are very difficult to fire, if you want to fire them, working in the White House. That's bad enough. But then going around standard protocols that are in place for a reason and that are in place for national security purposes and, and protective purposes for the country, to go around that, I think, is a terrible thing. Is it a crime? No. Is it something that should be investigated by Congress? Yes. And I expect you'll be seeing hearings about that. And as we record this on Wednesday morning, March 6th, there are now reports that Donald Trump did the same thing with respect to Ivanka Trump, his daughter, over the objection of lots and lots of folks, including John Kelly and the White House counsel, Don McGahn, who, reminder, who's no longer the White House counsel and reportedly sat down for many hours of interviews with the special counsel. So in the midst of all this other discussion about potential obstruction and the Russia investigation uh, and payments that were made before the election by Donald Trump and Michael Cohen, there are these other inquiries that are going to be important too. And the chair of the Oversight Committee in Congress, Elijah Cummings, has already indicated that he has an interest in looking at these things because there's been a lot of things that happened against protocol. And I think these are important as well. You know, and by the way, we can forget these things fairly quickly because there's so much news. All of this business of basically coercing people who worked for him against their better judgment to give a security clearance to someone like Jared Kushner happens in the wake of Donald Trump vindictively taking away the security clearance of people who criticized him, like John Brennan. So this whole idea of, of the treatment of a top-level security clearance, either as a punishment for a political rival or as something to be casually bestowed upon a relative, I think is problematic and is really something that needs to be looked at. This is a Twitter question from Leah Smith. I'm wondering if there is as much political theater in a closed congressional hearing as we saw at the open Cohen hearing on Wednesday. Thanks, hashtag Aspreet. So obviously, there's a lot of political theater that accompanies 
public hearings, you have people who are actual politicians who are running for office. And if you're in the House, you're running for office every two years. And, you know, you might be playing for the cameras a little bit on national television. But remember, all these people have constituencies back at home. And if they make a show or ask a poignant question that gets a certain kind of answer, and there's some histrionics involved with it, they can get a story in the local paper, which may help them gain votes in their district. So that's to be expected. I think people would do a better job and get more attention and advance the ball and their own careers and their own political prospects if they just stuck to the script of asking good, smart, tough questions without the speeches. But you know that advice has not been heeded by too many people in the recent past. So I've been in public hearings, obviously, during my time in the Senate, and also a smaller number of closed session hearings. Based on my experience, the political theater is a little bit less in the closed sessions. There's no camera. There are no reporters there to take down tough exchanges that take place. There's less need to speechify. Now, I will tell you, without naming names, there are some members of Congress for whom it's become their DNA to be histrionic and engage in theater. Every time they're making any kind of inquiry, it's just the way they are. And they can't necessarily quickly and radically change from the behavior they display at a public hearing to what they display in a closed session. But it's by and large better. It's by and large, there's less fluff. There's more focus on the information. And it it tends to be, in my experience, much more cordial than what you see in an open hearing sometimes. One caveat on that, depending on the nature of the closed hearing, there is some likelihood that the transcript will be made public. That's not the same as actually watching something live and the closed hearings are not video recorded. But when members of Congress know that their questions won't necessarily be seen by the public that day, but may be seen in the future, there is again this creep of political theater there as well for that reason. This Twitter question comes from MC Farine. Hey, Preet, a quick question. Who is paying the killer lawyers newly hired to defend the president from congressional investigations? Trump himself or we the people? Please let us know. Thanks for both your podcasts. Can't wait to read the book. Hashtag AskPreet. The answer to that question is we the people. This one comes from a tweet from Jacob Dubois. A technical question. Do you ask voicemail callers to re-record their questions? Everyone has such well-thought-out, concise questions that made me wonder. Let me know if you'd like me to rewrite this tweet. Hashtag AskPreet. Hashtag stay tuned. No, this tweet was elegant and right to the point. So thank you, Jacob. We don't ask our voicemail callers to re-record their questions. The trick to getting your question answered, in part, is in being fairly concise when you leave the message. Sometimes we get you know, wonderful voicemail messages that contain a lengthy sort of preamble to a question. Those are a little bit harder for us to play on the air because we don't have a ton of time. We do sometimes, as folks say, edit questions for clarity. But there's no re-recording. Thanks for your question. Yeah, and last thing, one other question I've been getting a lot is, where am I going on my book tour, apart from New York? So I'm going to a lot of cities, and we keep adding them. So so check in from time to time at cafe.com slash book. There you can get tickets to the live podcast, or the book events I'm doing around the country, or pre-order the book itself. cafe.com slash book. My guest this week is Pete Buttigieg. He's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and he's considering a run for the presidency in 2020. Mayor Pete, as he's known, is a 37-year-old Rhodes Scholar with degrees from Oxford and Harvard and a U.S. Navy Reserve veteran. During his mayoral term, he took leave to serve in Afghanistan. Pete is also the author of a new book, Shortest Way Home, One Mayor's Challenge and a Model for America's Future. I speak with him about generational change in politics, winning in the Midwest, and the meaning of political courage. That's coming up. Stay tuned. This week, everyone is talking about that article by Jane Mayer, The Making of the Fox News White House. The article was published in The New Yorker, which has some of the best writing in America today. Online and in print, The New Yorker covers a full range of topics in depth, including lots of things we like to cover in this podcast, politics and news, international affairs, and culture. The New Yorker's incredible roster also includes former Stay Tuned guest Ronan Farrow, who's written breaking news pieces on Harvey Weinstein and CBS's Les Moonves, and another Stay Tuned guest, Jeffrey Tubin, 
who wrote a moving profile of Brian Stevenson, who was here on the show last week. And if you don't like my jokes in this podcast, there's always the famous New Yorker cartoons. Because who doesn't need a little humor after reading the news these days? Now, you can save 50% on a subscription to The New Yorker. Get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for only $6 when you go to newyorker.com slash preet. Enter promo code preet. You'll also get an exclusive tote bag, as well as The New Yorker's apps, online archive, and crossword puzzle. And you'll have unlimited access to newyorker.com, which publishes 10 to 15 web-only stories every day. That's newyorker.com slash preet. Enter promo code preet. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So can we start off by um, talking about the most interesting or funny way that your last name has been mispronounced? Because that happens to me a lot. And oh, <laughs> so I want to commiserate with you. Yeah, I should keep a list. I mean, I've gotten everything from butter egg to buttinger to, <laughs> I mean, you, you name it, I've heard it. Some things you really wonder how they could possibly get that out of, out of what they see in front of them. But uh, that's why they just call me Mayor Pete. But it's very easy. It's just, it's Buddha judge. It's like the kind of thing you do to someone on the bench that you don't like. Yeah, Buddha exactly. <laughs> um, I think I was once called Preet Bruhaha. Ah, I like that. That's the worst that I've gotten. Yeah, it's not so bad. It could be, it could be worse. So you have formed an exploratory committee. I never understand what exactly that is. So if I were to ask you, are you running for president? The answer to that at this moment is technically maybe. Yeah, the best way to put it at this stage is that we're uh, we're in the early stages of putting together a run. So there's a, a maze of compliance things that I don't even fully understand, other than that I know that you only get to launch once, and uh, we want to do it the right way. But that being said, I mean, in the month or so that's passed since we set up the committee, we've set out to find out uh, how we would do in terms of early state response, in terms of you know what was resonating through the press, in terms of fundraising, and everything that we've seen so far has exceeded our expectations, and all of the signs are pointing in the same direction. When would you decide to announce by? We're certainly getting close, but again, there are a bunch of pieces you need to have in place, especially as somebody who's not personally wealthy, who, who has to uh, raise funds to put all of these pieces together. And as somebody who uh, you know, hasn't uh, had a, a pack in Washington for 10 or 20 or 40 years, there's a lot of things that we've got to build from the ground up. And uh, since you only get to launch once, uh, we want to make sure we do it right before we come out guns blazing and, and go for it. So I've done a lot of interviews, and you and I have met. Uh, you participated in our conference last year, and it was, right. it was, a, it it's was a great. A, event. It was an amazing experience. Yeah, thank you so much. And I was impressed with you then, but I, I've never interviewed anybody who's on the cusp of running for president, who likely will run for president. So apologies for this maybe inane question, but who are you? How do you identify yourself, given your attributes and your credentials and everything else? And people talk about that, and I've read you know all the profiles on you, but how do you describe yourself if you had a minute? Well, maybe the simplest way to introduce myself is that I'm a, a Midwestern millennial mayor. I'm rooted in the industrial Midwest, the very part of the country that uh, my party, unfortunately, really lost touch with in many ways in recent years, but where I now think there's a, a real resurgence happening and, and something uh, that I believe is a powerful answer to the idea of being peddled by the White House that the only way to our hearts here in the middle of the country is, is through resentment or promises to turn back the clock. I'm millennial. I, I belong to a generation that uh, grew up with some of the problems that we're facing now in the news. You know, I was in, in high school when Columbine happened. I, I belong to the school shooting generation. And we're also the generation that put forward most of the troops who served after 9-11 and the generation with the most to lose from climate change. And, and that's really shaped my worldview. And uh, frankly, it's one of the things that's motivated my uh, my approach to 2020. And I'm a mayor. I, I come at uh, politics and government through the perspective of somebody who is uh, accountable every day on the ground for the well-being of the community around me, who deals with things from race relations and policing to parks and recreation, and fits it into one picture about how good government can help people uh, live lives of their choosing and, and tear down the obstacles that get in our way. And it's, it's the attitude that I wish were more commonly seen in Washington these days. You have stated a couple of times that you're a, a millennial and say that proudly, and I respect that. Uh, another way that people talk about your generation is to say that you're 37 years old, barely past the threshold in the Constitution of the age required to run for president. I'm not going to ask you to justify it. I'm going to ask you instead, do you get tired and irritated with the constant questions about your age? 
No, I think it's fair game. I, I think somebody like me shouldn't step into this, this process unless you're prepared to speak to those questions. But uh, I'll also say that in many ways, the, the message of generational change has been a, a real advantage. I think when you run at my age, and in some ways, your face is your message. The one group that's responded even more powerfully than younger voters is older voters. Uh, people I meet, uh, I was just with, with a bunch yesterday in, in Iowa, my parents' generation, who really embrace the idea of uh, a new generation putting forward leadership. And the uh, question of uh, who's old enough to run was uh, settled a long time ago in the U.S. Constitution. I think the real question in front of us is who brings the right combinations of experiences to be able to uh, approach this job in a way that makes sense for the 21st century. And uh, people may not expect experience to be one of the first words to come out of the mouth of the youngest guy in the conversation. But I really think that the experiences of, of my community, my experiences in executive roles in government, as well as my experiences in, in business in the military, shape how I come at things and, and give me a, a message uh, and a way of talking that is uh, just not like the others. How do you expect at the debates to explain your lack of experience as a reality television star? <laughs> you know, apparently that's suddenly become a qualification. Uh, regrettably, uh, that's probably an experience I will never have. The, the undercover boss people came around once, uh, and uh, we had a talk with them, but I just couldn't figure out how uh, my own workforce, even if, if uh, uh, you changed everything about my physical appearance, i uh, pretty sure I would have been spotted in a matter of minutes by uh, any number of cops or firefighters <laughs> or uh, uh, garbage workers here in South Bend. What do you think about the, the folks who are not of your generation, several generations older, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and potentially Joe Biden, do you think that they maybe shouldn't run and move over for people of the younger generation? It's not my place to tell anybody whether they should or shouldn't run. Uh, I do think that there's something to be said for leaders stepping forward who have a personal stake in what the future will look like. I'm worried that we, especially in our party, uh, the Democratic Party, think kind of one cycle at a time when we really need to be thinking, as conservatives very effectively have over the course of my lifetime, one era at a time. I think we're at a hinge point between eras in American politics, and I think anything could come up ahead. And so we need to be asking these big picture questions, and it helps to be able to present the fact that I have a personal stake, not a theoretical, but a personal one, in what the world will look like in 2054, which is, God willing, when I will reach the current age of the current president. And when you, when you view the, the state of our democracy, our economy, and our climate in 2054 as something you personally need to be preparing for, I think it, it gives you a different outlook than some of the folks in, in Washington right now who seem to treat these issues from, from climate to fiscal policy as though their consequences were somebody else's problem. What do you think the future of the Democratic Party is? I guess, you know, we can maybe later talk about the future of the Republican Party, the counterweight, which I don't understand what that party is anymore. But how much of a rift do you think there is within the party in terms of ideological differences? I think the, the future of the party is in uh, bold and structural ideas that speak to the flaws in our economy and our democracy that made the current presidency possible. I mean, a, a figure like the current occupant of the White House should never have been able to come even within cheating distance unless something were seriously wrong uh, in, uh, in our country. And frankly, communities like mine have long felt here in the industrial Midwest that we've been left out of a lot of the growth and, and progress that leaders of both parties have been touting uh, over the course of my lifetime. So I think for the Democratic Party to have a future, we need to be developing messages that are going to make as much sense in 2030, 2040, 2050 uh, as they do in 2020, which means that they can't be messages that revolve around the other guy. And I do think one of the biggest uh, problems we've had really across my lifetime uh, is a fixation on what the Republicans are doing, whether it's uh, trying to outdo each other in being against it, or whether it's uh, the formula that kind of dominated in the 90s, which was uh, trying to kind of imitate it and go halfway there. Either way, uh, you're in trouble when your policies and priorities are all keyed off the other party's policy and priorities. We, we should be thinking for ourselves. We should be offering a different account of what freedom means that's about a lot more than freedom from government and regulation, but, but includes things like freedom to uh, live a life you're choosing because you have health care and the ability to organize and reproductive rights and all the other things our party stands for. And more than anything, I think we should be the party of the long term. Uh, the ones who were concerned about uh, how to keep America healthy and safe and productive for the decades to come, uh, as though our lives depended on it, because uh, if you belong to my generation, they do. So give us an example of one specific thing that gets at the big picture 
that's important and that's as relevant in 2020 as you hope it will be in 2030 and 2040? Well, there's no question that climate deserves to be front and center. I mean, this is an issue that uh, has already, I think, asserted itself just in terms of the reality around us. Uh, Communities like mine experiencing historic floods that are supposed to be 500-year or 1,000-year events on an almost annual basis, parts of California catching on fire, sea level rise in Florida cities that that my fellow mayors are dealing with. Uh, So we've got to rightly situate that as a major priority and a historic challenge that, that our country is facing. But there are also structural issues, things that are going to decide uh, whether our democracy is healthy for the uh, you know, half century to come. And that's everything, in my view, from uh, things like electoral college reform, so that we can be a true democracy and not just one in name only, to taking some step that will confront the uh, slide of the U.S. Supreme Court toward being regarded as a nakedly political institution, uh, which, if that uh, continues to happen, really undermines not just the court, but the country. Are you a pragmatist? I think so. Yeah, you know, when you're a mayor, you you uh, are in a very pragmatic world because you got to get stuff done. You you don't get to indulge uh, in philosophizing, but uh, you also have to have a philosophy because uh, at the end of the day, executive roles in government are basically a, an experience in practical on the ground philosophy. But the thing is, pr- to me, pragmatism is not the same thing as ideological centrism. Sometimes pragmatism puts, pushes you in a direction that is considered bold or even radical, but you gotta follow the facts where they lead. And then we'll let the political class sort out what is defined as being left, right, or center, uh, instead of starting by trying to assign a label to an idea and then uh, taking all of our positions based on that. I, you know, I think the mentality of any executive in government, certainly a mayor, uh, when contemplating any idea is not, is this left, right, or center? It's is this a good idea and is it going to work? What's the evidence and how far can we take it? That's interesting what you said. And the reason I asked the question is in, in going through your biography, you have gone to many schools and the, and the best schools, as someone says, and you studied at Oxford. And I understand that you studied, among other things, the writings of Immanuel Kant and John Rawls, with whom I studied. I'm a bit older than you. When I was in college, John Rawls was still alive. And I took a class when I wrote my thesis on Rawls. And so I wonder given your answer that you can be pragmatic but also have to have a philosophy, is what role has your education in thinking about political theory and political philosophy, things that are very far from the minds and the discussions that we have with voters these days? Has that been important to you? Did that inform you in some way? Do you carry some of those thoughts and theories and lessons with you as you govern? No, it shaped me in many ways. And and Rawls is a great example. You know, one of the things Rawls was very alive to is that, you know, we we should have a certain level of humility in assuming that uh, everything we get is something that we deserve. Understanding that life's lottery uh, assigns us uh, different circumstances and different gifts uh, means that, uh, well, to me, it aligns with a very Midwestern intuition, which is uh, we shouldn't believe that we invented ourselves. Um, Obviously, uh, hard work and and originality and innovation uh, deserve to be rewarded in our market marketplace does a good uh, job of rewarding them. But we shouldn't assume that success in a material sense is always the same thing as virtue. Uh, and that's been one, one weakness that we've had sometimes culturally is, is, is we make that mistake and uh, sometimes follow that to, uh, to a degree that's not reasonable. You know, he was also really concerned with justice and, and, and fairness. You know, another philosophical debate that I tracked a lot as a student is this question between, you know, the utilitarian perspective that says that, you know, what you're doing is right or wrong based on uh, how many people it, it makes better off. And a more Kantian or some would say Christian perspective that that really focuses more on your intention and what you seek to achieve. I think when you're in government, it always pushes you more in a utilitarian direction because you can kind of count up how many people you made better off or worse off. and, And you're certainly held accountable on that basis by the political process. But I also think values matter, intention matters, why you're doing what you're doing matters. And much of the sort of moral equipment I got to deal with those questions came uh, from you know two very different sources. One is the the faith tradition that I'm part of, uh, and the other is the the philosophical tradition that I that I was immersed in when I was a student at Oxford. So, if you're photographed running from one rally to another, reading the grounding of the metaphysics of morals, that'll be because of this conversation. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about that. You know, one of the other things Rawls wrote about, and it's been a while, but he talked about one of the ways that liberal democracies work and function well and should be thought of as societies where there are, there's an overlapping consensus on certain principles, how we view liberty, what we think of the social contract, 
And that helps because there's a culture that's created that even though people have differences of opinion on so many things, there's some things about which there is, as he said, an overlapping consensus. Do you think we have that in the U.S. or are we at risk of losing that in some way? I actually think that we do. I think in some ways the test of whether our democracy is in good shape is whether it's able to deliver on things that are objects of consensus in, in the, across the American people. And one thing that's alarming right now is on everything from economic justice, the general intuition among Americans that not everybody's paying their fair share and that uh, you know wages need to be higher and, and, and working conditions need to be fairer, or very specific policies like, for example, uh, common sense gun safety that you know 90 or 80 percent of Americans and in some measures 80 percent of Republicans agree on. And uh, Washington simply cannot deliver it. Anytime there's that much consensus among the American people and that little consensus among the American Congress, you have to ask whether our representative republic is doing a good job of representing us. And I think some of the weaknesses uh, in the system right now help to explain the sense of disaffection and disillusionment and sometimes anger that has arisen across America uh, when it comes to uh, you know, looking at the failures of the political class in, in responding to our needs. Can we talk about a very dirty word that in some places gets censored and it begins with an S and ends in, <laughs> and ends in ocialism? <laughs> uh, some people may not know that you, when you were in high school, not that long ago, wrote an award-winning essay about courage. And I, I believe the contest was the JFK Profiles in Courage essay competition. That's right. And Tell everyone who the who the courageous person you wrote about was and why. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, the prompt for the essay contest was to write about somebody who demonstrated political courage. And uh, I wrote about a, an obscure, then obscure member of Congress uh, named Bernie Sanders. And uh, uh, one of the things that, that really drew me to, to that example was uh, no matter what you, whether you agreed with his policies or not, you had somebody who embraced a label that was a career killer for many people. He called himself a socialist. And, you know, that was a word that was being used to close down debate at the time because being credibly accused of it kind of uh, was a kill switch uh, on an idea or even on a, a, a person's future. Uh, and so watching that happen, you know, the, the times have changed a little bit around, uh, obviously around him as a figure, but also around the uh, the way that vocabulary is used. But to me, what was so interesting was at this moment when it seemed like a lot of politicians had been outgrowing their convictions in order to get elected. Yet somebody like him who just came out and said what he was for. And I think we'd be well served in politics if more people on all sides just came out, said what they were for, and tried to uh, win the battle of ideas instead of uh, the other way around, trying to trick people into thinking your ideas or whatever it is they already believe, uh, which isn't leadership. Who did you vote for in the 2016 primary? Secretary Clinton. I was a, I was a delegate for her at the convention. Um, and I think she... Even though Bernie was your ticket in the essay writing competition. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's... Uh, and when I was 18 years old, uh, he I, I was drawn to those qualities. And I'm drawn to those qualities today, frankly. I, I think it's a good thing that he has expanded the field of... Uh, uh, of the debate within the party. And I think that, uh, you know, we need to be willing to entertain a spectrum of ideas in order to get anywhere. Uh, and, and, and more than anything, I think we need that attribute of uh, saying who we are and saying what we're for. So going back to this issue of what socialism is, how do you think the average person who has been maybe around the block and the planet longer than you and who went through the Cold War experience, and you've written about this, you know, there's a generational difference between people who went through that experience and who are often likely to equate communism with socialism and the ultimate bad word and bad form of government for Americans is communism. How should people think about this discussion going forward uh, so that they're not just consumed by the label, but they think about the policies? Yeah, I, th I think uh, the most important thing, first of all, is to evaluate ideas based on you know their value and 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 how much they make sense. Because there's words like socialism get thrown around in so many different ways. I mean, does socialism you know is social security socialism? Is Medicare socialism? Uh, is the ACA? which was invented by conservatives. Uh, are we going to go along with calling that socialism? Because that's what the Tea Party did in those town halls. 
you know, when you when you think of a country that's moved in a socialist direction, are you thinking about Venezuela? Or are you thinking about Denmark? You know, the, in, in many ways, the words have lost their, their power and lost their meaning because of the way they've been thrown around in the debate. Uh, to me, I think if you come from a generation that experienced the Cold War and grew up to associate socialism with communism on one side of the spectrum and capitalism with democracy on the other side, then very naturally uh, uh, you will be susceptible to, to that word being used to uh, sometimes kill off a line of argument or a debate. For anyone who's, who's kind of my age or younger, th- those things are more free-floating, that we understand that capitalism and democracy and socialism and communism are all different ideas. The real question is, uh, in our capitalist democratic country, what happens when there's a, a tension or even a conflict between capitalism and democracy? Do we put democracy first or do we put capitalism first? And uh, you know, it may have been an, taken as an article of faith one or two generations ago that capitalism and democracy went together, but actually we have some uh, living, breathing examples of what to expect when we have capitalism without democracy. And actually, oddly enough, uh, the place to look for that is the former Soviet Union. I mean, look no further than Russia to see what happens if you try to uh, have capitalism without insisting on democratic controls and things like a rule of law. And what you get is a sort of uh, twisted crony capitalism that does not uh, achieve all the productive value and, and growth and social mobility that America got through through a different kind of more honest capitalism. And, uh, and I'm afraid that in many ways we're, we're tipping in that direction here in the U.S. now. So I want to make sure I understand your view of the way forward on these issues. So on the one hand, you say that, you know, the term socialism and socialist can be, uh, you know, a deal breaker and a kill switch for a lot of folks. And it's unclear what it means because it's a different word with different connotations for different generations. And depending on what policy you're talking about, it can mean different things. And so you should think about rejecting the word and rejecting the label when it's imposed upon someone. And on the other hand, embracing the courage of Bernie Sanders, who unapologetically uses the phrase and the term as a label for himself. Which is it? Well, I guess what I'm saying is you should say what you are. If you're a socialist, say you're a socialist. If you're a capitalist, say you're a capitalist. If you're a liberal, say that you're a liberal. If you're a progressive, you know, it's interesting that the term of art progressive has come, and I consider myself a progressive, um, you know, has come to define uh, uh, being leftward on the spectrum because I'm, I'm just old enough to remember when people used the word progressive to describe themselves because they were afraid to use the word liberal and progressive sounded just a little bit safer. So uh, I consider myself a progressive. I suppose I also consider myself a liberal if nothing else, than in the classical sense of the term, because I think liberty is the uh, the greater share of what we should be working to achieve through good policy, which, by the way, can be delivered by good government, tearing down obstacles just as much as it can be impinged on by by bad government. So, what's the difference then? What's what's the Venn diagram look like? Liberal and progressive. That may be a theoretical question. I think for me, uh, when I think about what it means to be liberal. I think about the, you know, the, the etymology of the word, that it's about liberty. And uh, you know, part of what I've been trying to build up is a sense of liberty that, that is not uh, kind of trapped in the, the th- sort of thin conception of freedom that seems to dominate conservative and libertarian thinking, that really understands that uh, you know, good policy leads to freedom. The freedoms that have really mattered in my life are freedoms like uh, the freedom to marry the person that I love, uh, the, the freedom to, uh, to be able to access uh, health care for us. And, and now we're worried about things like the economic freedom that will be denied if uh, we're never able to refinance the student debt that is, uh, that is weighing down our household. You know, these are the kinds of freedoms that really matter to folks. And so I think in that classical sense, liberalism is, is as salient today as ever. I guess when we think about being progressive, to me, that, that evokes a sense of being concerned with uh, the well-being of people who don't always have a voice. And, you know, the, the great progressive tradition in, in America really uh, begins in, in the 19th century uh, right here in the heartland uh, because there were a lot of farmers uh, as well as industrial workers who were being left behind in another era where there was a great concentration of wealth and where, as today, that concentration of wealth began to turn into a concentration of power and threaten our democracy. Uh, so that progressive tradition, I mean, you know, all of these labels, I think, wear differently for different people because they get thrown around so casually. And I'm, in many ways, a political theory guy, but I'm, I'm less concerned with the, the, the elegance of our theories, and I'm more concerned with what's going to work. And uh, again, this may be a mayor's eye view, and maybe this even makes me a big P pragmatist, like the, the pragmatist school of philosophy. But I really believe that the test of an idea, the test of a policy, the test of a party, and certainly the test of a politician 
uh, is whether uh, what is being espoused stands to make our lives in the everyday better or worse. And and my biggest fear about the way that a sort of political horror show has captivated Washington today is that it takes our attention away from the everyday, that good politics, uh, like a lot of good literature and film, really puts the everyday at the center. That's, that's our, our unit of analysis. That's what we care about. And when I think about you know, everyday life, I think it's been made better by policies for the most part that would be considered more progressive or more liberal or more leftward or whatever you want to call it. You mentioned the freedom to marry the person you love. And a lot of people, when they describe you, Frank Bruni and others, in the first sentence of Profiles, they talk about the fact that you were perhaps the first openly gay candidate for president who's a plausible choice. And I think Frank Bruni's column from a couple of years ago identified you as a rising star. I think the title of the, of the piece might have been America's First Gay President. When I asked you who you are, you mentioned a lot of your background and that you're a Midwesterner, and you didn't mention that you're gay. And I know that you have written uh, very movingly about the process of coming out for yourself. You were elected mayor, and then you came out openly on the eve of re-election. Is that right? Yeah, I was in the middle of a re-election campaign. Mike Pence was governor. It was a, it was a challenging time to do it, but it was, it was the right time just in my life. Whatever happened to that guy? You know, um, I write about this a little bit in, in the book, too. Uh, you know, there are competing theories on, on what happened to him. One is that he, he really believes. I and mean, the question is, how does somebody like that team up? with somebody like this who, uh, you know, flies in the face of, of everything that someone like Mike Pence claims to believe in. And, you know, one answer that, that some people speculate is that he uh, actually believes that there's some kind of divine plan, that God wants him uh, to be a cheerleader for a president uh, largely known for, for paying off porn stars. The other competing theory is that uh, uh, you know, it may turn out that uh, that he believes uh, a little bit less in Scripture now that he believes more in, in Donald Trump. Uh, who knows, really, what, what's what's happened to him, other than that, you know, from a cynical political perspective, uh, those two needed each other because, uh, you know, as, as governor, Pence had really lost his credibility here in the state of Indiana. And as a nominee, uh, Trump knew he needed to uh, really unite the right. And so uh, in, in just the cold political calculation of it all, it was uh, arguably a pretty good move for both of them. When you decided to tell folks publicly that you're gay, why'd you do it in the newspaper? Well, I was trying to figure out how to do it. I mean, part of me was puzzling over what to do because I feel like uh, I felt like I shouldn't have to. I mean, straight people don't have to come out. And so I was asking, you know, why, why do I? Um, someday, hopefully the way this works is uh, I would have just shown up at some community event and my date would have been a dude and everybody would have kind of noticed and, and, and shrugged and, and life would have gone on. But I just knew it wasn't going to be that simple, not not in, in Mike Pence's Indiana. I knew there were a lot of questions that people would uh, would ask, and, and, and there'd be a lot of challenges getting people to understand. So I did what I often do. I just sat down and, and wrote. And uh, what I wrote, I realized, gave me the chance to uh, explain this uh, kind of clearly and, and concisely and, and once uh, so that I could put it out there and then try to continue with, with my administration and continue with my life. And what was the reaction in, in the town that you lead? It was a mix, but generally it was it was great. I mean, there were there were obviously some people who were uh, not helpful. There were there was some ugliness out there, but it was really a tiny uh, sliver compared to two other kinds of reactions. One was people who went out of their way to let me know they were supportive. People who uh, let me know what it meant to them. Young people who were struggling with their sexuality. People I had served with in the military who were in the same boat, and I never knew it. And and that was really moving. Uh, and then a lot of other people who, in one form or another, made made it clear to me that they didn't care, which which was also great because uh, and I just wanted to be judged based on the job I was doing for the city. And, and when I got reelected, we got 80% of the vote, and I thought it was a, a great way to settle the question of whether this was going to be uh, a distraction or, or a burden uh, as I was trying to make the case for, for the achievements of this administration in the city. And so you're now married. Yep, got married in June. Congratulations. Thank you. You describe a mundane thing that lots and lots of people do. I think you showed up, uh, your husband teaches, am I right? Yeah. And you showed up one day with coffee. Describe that incident. And I shouldn't say incident, but, but because showing up and, and bringing your spouse coffee is a very sweet thing. 
Yeah, he was uh, he was teaching, I think, a, a fifth grade classroom at a public school in South Bend. And I we were sharing a car at the time, so I was, I was getting dropped off. I was picking up the car. I thought while I'm at it, I ought to bring him uh, a little something from, from Starbucks just to encourage him for the day, you know, like you do. <laughs> and pretty soon after I got back to the office, there was a, uh, a nasty gram in, in the inbox with somebody talking about how by, you know, visiting uh, the school and bringing chest and a cup of coffee i had uh uh you know put things in in kids heads that they had no no business uh uh knowing about at that age and and uh you know uh it was like i was corrupting the youth by uh trying to be nice uh to my uh to my <laughs> by partner. bringing coffee right right yeah and it's just a reminder that you know sometimes you are treated differently but uh, uh but again that's that's really been the minority in terms of the way people uh people have responded around here you mentioned your service a few times you joined the navy reserve Why'd you do that? I've always kind of wanted to do it, but always had some excuse for not now. When I was at Oxford, I was overseas. It wasn't convenient. I had a very demanding job when I came back. Uh, but I'd always felt a bit of a tug. The thing that put me over the top was when I went uh, knocking on doors for Obama. It was 2008. I went up to Iowa before the caucuses, and uh, I was sent to some very rural uh, and low-income communities that really reminded me of a lot of the areas in the counties around South Bend where I live. And I couldn't believe how many young men I encountered who were on their way to basic training. And it just prompted me to reflect at how rare it was. For, you know, I could, I could count on one hand the people I knew of at Harvard who had actually gone on to serve, which is funny because while I was at Harvard, I was brought up in the tradition of people like JFK and soaked up those legends. Uh, and at the time, it was almost a matter of course that if you had the benefit of that kind of education, you were more or less expected to serve. And so I realized that I might be part of the problem and uh, and thought that uh, you know I wasn't getting any younger and I needed to make myself useful. So I marched down to a recruiting office and, uh, and signed up. I had a background in Arabic, too, from college. I thought that would be helpful, not knowing that the recruiter would write down that I had minored in uh, aerobics when I was at Harvard. And it took a while to clear that up. But uh, in the end, I did become an intelligence officer, and I put my education to use, although mostly when I was deployed in Afghanistan, my most important job probably was uh, was just as a driver. I was driving and, and, and guarding uh, vehicle movements, uh, convoys, but I put convoy in quotation marks because it was usually just one vehicle going around the city of Kabul or sometimes going between Kabul and Bagram trying to make sure that the, the people and the equipment in my vehicle got safely to where they were going. Do you think that the requirement of registration for the draft should be extended to women? I think it's probably the right time for that. Look, we we uh, have decided uh, rightly as a country that the gender equity extends to the military, and uh, if uh, everybody is prepared to serve, then then everybody should be susceptible in the same ways. What do you think America's role in the world should be? Well, I think we can either lead the world or we can we can resent the rest of the world, but we can't do both. Uh, I think that, that you know our ability to lead really rests on American moral authority, which is obviously strained, to put it gently, um, but also still matters because I, I do believe in American values. And to the extent that we are committed to democracy, to the extent that we are committed to things like freedom and, and human rights, we need to lead on those. Uh, obviously, we've, we've given ourselves uh, a real beating in terms of our ability to stand up for those values. But I still think that when you look at the competing models, when you look at the, the Chinese model, uh, when you look at uh, uh, the Russian model, the other models that are out there in the world, I still think America's is the best one. The question is, can we be uh, a leading partner to really help uh, different peoples make good on, on their aspirations? But I think if we come back to a foreign policy, first of all, if we need to have a foreign policy, which, which I don't think we do at the moment. When we do, I hope that we can come back to one that is uh, correctly identifies American interests and American values as something that goes hand in hand, and then recognize that uh, in order for us to support our interests and do so in a way that's consistent with our values, uh, we also need to vet our decisions as much as we responsibly can with American allies so that we are building a community of nations that share uh, the same basic values and the same basic commitments. What would be your policy towards Russia? You know, I think we have to recognize that uh, Russia is behaving as an adversary, that they uh, struck at uh, our most precious thing we have, which is our democracy. And we need to enter into a relationship, if we can, if we can call it that, that secures our interests, uh, and also uh, one that, uh, uh, that hopefully establishes that it's in both parties' interests to do the right thing, to, to minimize uh, undue interference, to support our values when we do in an open way. I mean, needless to say, we've got to build up our uh, 
capabilities when it comes to things like uh, cyber defense, but also uh, in terms of the regional security framework. Uh, we've got to recognize that uh, it's not going to look like it used to. Can we go back to domestic issues for another minute? You think the Electoral College should be eliminated? I do. Uh, the Electoral College in my short lifetime has overruled the American people twice. Uh, it also means that uh, people in states like Indiana or New York are effectively rendered mute most of the time. Uh, we, we don't get a voice uh, because we don't happen to be in, in one of the states um, that is considered important in the, in the math of the Electoral College. And if there was any justification of the Electoral College that remained convincing into the 21st century, it was the idea that uh, maybe it could intervene if somebody who was totally unfit uh, ever uh, were to emerge as, uh, uh, as a selection pre for president. And I think we, we can rule out that uh, remaining thin justification for the Electoral College today and move to something that's more democratic. I think it's a common sense position uh, that the, the person who gets the most votes ought to be the person who wins. Yeah. Um, do you believe that the, the top marginal tax rate should be 70% or higher? I haven't arrived at a number that I think is required because I, I haven't matched that to the, the cost of some of the proposals that, that we're looking at. But I do think that uh, it needs to be higher than it is today because I think most Americans get that, uh, that there's a handful of people who are not paying their fair share. Now, I don't think you look to income taxes alone as part of how we can have a more equitable tax code. I think the concept of a wealth tax is uh, one that, again, first of all, it's commonsensical. I mean, here, here at the city level, we have property taxes. We keep them reasonable. In fact, I work very hard to, to make sure that uh, uh, that we take uh, pressure off those property taxes, but we use them in order to uh, make sure that we can pay for, for, for the basics. And uh, the more we can be taxing wealth uh, and not work, uh, I think the better our structure is. And I think the time has come to contemplate a tax on financial transactions, especially the type of financial transactions where it's very hard to gauge whether they represent any actual contribution to the real economy. So let's talk a little bit about what everyone else loves to talk about, the campaign and the process a little bit. Let's, let's talk about the field first. You know, I haven't checked in the last you know, 48 minutes, but I think it's something like 300 million people running in the Democratic primaries, yeah, which give would give take. new meaning to, to one, one person, one vote, I think. First, why, why do you suppose there are so many people running this time around? Does it have to do with Trump or something else? Partly. I think some of the reasons are good and some of the reasons are not good. I, I think the not good reasons is that, that some people look at uh, what just happened with the current president and they assume, first of all, this guy can do it, uh, anybody can do it. And, and they also assume uh, there are no rules. The problem is I actually think there, there are a great many rules that will reassert themselves. Some of the rules have been broken forever. Some of them are going to snap right back into place. And, and we won't know which is which until we've been through a couple more cycles. But there are some very good reasons why a lot of different people are running. And I think it's that, you know, the templates have been broken. And we're also uh, at this hinge point, as I suggested earlier, between, I think, eras in American politics. I think there's a 30 or 40 year era that was basically conservative and that was largely predictable that has come to an end. And nobody knows what's next. And so I think there's a, a contest to offer different accounts of what's ahead, not just for our party, but for our country. And the multiplicity of voices getting in shows you that, that there's appetite for that among the voters. Right? I mean, the fact that no one person has been able to command a majority or even three or four people uh, able to say that, you know, it's down to us and, and these are your, your kind of options. Uh, the fact that that hasn't happened at this stage of the game tells you uh, that there's an appetite for something very different. Uh, and there's a lot of different versions of, of, of what the contrast with the current president and the contrast with our, our past and its, uh, its disappointments, uh, what that might look like. And so, uh, you know, for, for my dime, I think the more the merrier. I mean, partly maybe a bit selfishly because I think the more people are in it, the uh, more favorable the environment is for uh, newcomers and underdogs. And, and I know that I'm both of those things. But also because I think it really uh, serves us well to have as many markers laid as possible around, around the kind of field of, of ideas and, and also uh, messengers as we build an account of what we think the Democratic Party uh, really ought to be about. But it's, it's incredibly confusing, I think, to the average voter. And I consider myself to be a private citizen, average voter. You know, how do you how do you distinguish among policies, programs when you have that many choices? I mean, people are used to watching sports and there's, you know, there's one team and there's another team. I guess there's individual sports where you, you don't have quite this many people, you know, sort of in the finals. How do you think about standing out among the crowd or do you not think about that? 
you know, we're a long way from the finals. And, and one, one other benefit of having this many people in the mix is it, it doesn't, it's not really worth, for somebody like me, it's not worth trying to game out what each of the others is doing or how to position yourself with respect to them. Uh, you just got to uh, run your own playbook. And, and in many ways, you're, you're, you're playing against the house, uh, not against any one of your competitors. Coming at it as a voter, I think the important thing is, is just to rely on, on good intuition and, uh, and pattern recognition to look for what makes sense. Look, there's a lot of convergence, actually. There will be some novel ideas, some interesting things said, but there's going to be a broad convergence, I think, probably 80% of the message among the, the different candidates. And then it's going to come back to, you know, what kind of messenger do we think makes the most sense? What messenger speaks to us, inspires us, and seems uh, poised to, to win in, in that uh, broader competition? And, uh, you know, the, the process has a way of sorting these things out. But, uh, uh, you know, it's also uh, a process that needs to be fair so that everybody has a shot. And, uh, you know, we're working to build the kind of grassroots support that would make it possible for us to to break through. Um, but again, I think the more people are in the mix, the more kind of voices like mine that are uh, will, uh, will have an opportunity here. If you're an average Democrat and you believe the country is moving very quickly in the wrong direction, is there anything more important to that person than getting someone onto the ticket who is most likely to win in the general election. In other words, general election viability. And if, and if that's so, what's your argument in favor of that? So I, I actually think on, on one level, that's certainly true. I mean, we've got to put a stop to the situation that we're in. But I think at a deeper level, it could be a very self-defeating approach. Uh, so, of course, I can explain all the reasons why I think putting forward, uh, you know, somebody who's, who's fresher, who doesn't have the uh, maybe the baggage of having been part of the establishment, somebody who comes from the very part of the country uh, that the president kind of ripped from the hands of the Democratic Party, namely me, would be a good idea. But but I got to say, most of the time when Democrats uh, put somebody forward because we think that person uh, is more likely to win instead of because we think that we believe in that person, when we put forward the persons just because we think they're more likely to win, they wind up being more likely to lose. And the reason is that, uh, you know, it's not all about ideology. There are a lot of people around here who voted for, for Obama uh, and Trump and Pence and me. Uh, so it means that, you know, people aren't strictly ideological when they're making their choices. And the really important thing that I think Democrats need to learn, and it's a little bit contrary to our habit, we got to learn not to go right into the policies because the right did a very effective job of, of litigating on values and really winning a, a, a big idea debate uh, so that even when we got our people elected, they were often compelled to do things that were basically conservative. I mean, I think that's been true for, for the better part of my lifetime. And that just might be changing. But that means we've got to put forward people that we believe in, that we think are inspiring, that we think matter. If, for example, Indiana Democrats were trying to figure out who we thought would be the most electable in 2008. I doubt that we would have uh, come up with President Obama. And yet President Obama wound up being the only person in my lifetime, a matter of fact, the only person since LBJ, to get uh, Indiana to vote Democratic. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we psych ourselves out and we outthink ourselves by trying to, you know, vote based on some imputation of what we think some people on the other side might think of the people that we think ought to be in office. We ought to just vote for people we think are compelling messengers for what is right, and then trust those voices to be compelling across the aisle when the time comes. It's an interesting thing to me that there are people who, on prior podcasts, we've talked about this, who voted for Bush and then Obama and then Trump, and then may vote for a Democrat the next time. And in your own state, as you just said a second ago, there are people who voted for Mike Pence and also Pete Buttigieg. What kind of folks are those that can vote for people who are so different? Is it because they're compelling messengers on different points? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's, it's that people um, will give you a lot of leeway on policy if they just think that they can trust you, if, if they get a sense that, that you speak for them. So, you know, I've been able to draw a lot of Republican and independent support in, in South Bend here. And it's, it's never been based on pretending to be more conservative than I am. It's, it's really had to do with trying to uh, make a case about uh, where our community was headed and also just introduce myself as a person. And, and you know, a lot of people aren't, uh, as, as the press tends to do, uh, arraying everybody on this matrix of policy positions and then identifying the dot that, uh, uh, that is likeliest to correspond to your own uh, sense of things. A lot of people just uh, want to get to know you as a person. It's, it's intuition. It's pattern recognition. And then if, if they think that they understand what you care about, then they will trust you to put forward policies that are going to speak to how their everyday lives can get better. 
during the campaign, do you intend to avoid talking about Donald Trump? I'm certainly not going to specialize in it. Look, when, when he when he lies, we got to correct it, and when he does something wrong, we got to confront it. But this cannot be about him. That's that's kind of all consuming. If if, if you're on the campaign trail, correcting his lies every time he makes them, you're going to be very busy. I, I think we you know we confront it and then we move on. It, it can't be about him. I think a big part of how we got in trouble in 2016 was our message by the end of the cycle was all about him. And a lot of folks in in communities like mine were saying, okay, but but who's talking about me? That's part of what I'm getting at when I say we got to have a message that makes sense in 2040 or, or 2054. We need to really think about what the world looks like when this president and presidency comes and goes. And, and by the way, we need to treat this presidency like a symptom of a set of problems that this, this is why I'm very worried about the temptation in the party to have kind of a restoration, uh, kind of back to normal, right? Because that line of thinking says, okay, A, uh, what we're doing is unsustainable. We can't go on like this. This, this presidency is horrible and it's, it's tearing us up. That part's right. But then for a lot of people, it, it's, it's, there's this temptation to uh, follow from that into a part B that says, therefore, Let's go back. Let's go back to what we were doing. Let's go back to the 2000s. To me, the democratic temptation to go back to the Obama years or the Clinton years is no more realistic than the conservative temptation to try to go back to the 50s somehow. If there weren't something deeply flawed in the way things were going uh, for the last 30 or 40 years, a presidency like the one we're living in now would not even be possible. And you wouldn't have had so many people in, in areas like mine walking into the, the voting booth with eyes wide open, with no illusions about this guy's character, and uh, consciously voting to burn the house down. If we're not attending to those issues, which include economic inequality and unfairness and the distribution of power and the distortions in our democracy and the uh, abandonment of the interior, if we're not dealing with those issues, then even if it weren't Donald Trump, there would be somebody or something like him, and we'd be here all over again. Pete Buttigieg, congratulations. Good luck on your run. Thanks for being on the show. Great being with you. Thanks a lot. So now it's time to close out the show. And as you may know, if you listen frequently, two of the things that warm my heart are efforts to make democracy more fair, and second, the involvement and engagement of young people. And this week, I came upon a story that combines both of those things. So it's especially heartwarming. And it's a story about three young siblings Josh, Rebecca, and Louis LaFerre, who happen to hail from Austin, Texas. They live in an especially gerrymandered district. As you know, gerrymandering is the process by which partisans hold on to power by creating very bizarre-looking, jagged-edged districts to reduce the chance of incumbents being defeated and to reduce the chance of there being proportional representation in Congress. Gerrymandering is an affront to democracy. There have been a lot of efforts to undo it. There are cases winding their way through the courts. Some have been successful, some have not. There are two coming up in the Supreme Court later in March. So what did these three siblings from Austin decide to do? They decided to create a board game to raise awareness of gerrymandering. One of the siblings, Josh LaFerre, says that he's been talking about gerrymandering within his family for a long time, which is impressive because he's only 17. Here's what he says, according to an NBC News report, about gerrymandering. Quote, it has all the right mechanics of a board game, scheming, strategizing, backstabbing. And then we did some research and we found a few things online, but there was no board game. So the LaFerre children created one. It's called Mapmaker. Here's how NBC News describes the game. Each player acts as a politician, picks a party affiliation, represented by a color, red, blue, yellow, or green. You get color-coded chips, which display numbers that represent voters. And then they're spread out randomly on properties across the board. And every player politician starts with the same amount of voters total. And the overall winner is the player politician with the most districts. So it basically attempts to mirror what happens in gerrymandering in various districts around the country. You know, for board game aficionados, also known as nerds, the mapmaker game a little bit resembles Settlers of Catan. What do they plan to do with the game? Well, you can order one for yourself, but more importantly, the LaFairs plan to send copies of the game to governors and state legislatures around the country and to raise more awareness of the problem. Unless you think this is an amateur job, the game was based on a lot of research and a lot of work. The LaFair siblings spoke to the chair of the mathematics department at Duke University, whose work has involved investigating gerrymandering, 
and who has been cited in court cases challenging district maps in North Carolina and in Wisconsin. The siblings and their game have also caught the attention of former governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who has made the issue of gerrymandering one of his most important causes. Here's what Arnold tweeted about the game when it was just starting to get some attention. Pumped to get my prototype of mapmaker game to play with my team. Much better than a smoky backroom where politicians scam voters. Get yours now and support these great engaged students who are educating people about gerrymandering. Let me add my congratulations to Arnold Schwarzenegger's. I think it's an amazing thing when young people not only learn about what's going on in the democracy, not only identify failings in their democracy, but then take action, and not just any kind of action, but clever, creative, innovative action to try to raise awareness and solve the problem. And every time I hear a story like this, I'm going to want to tell you guys about it. If you want to support these folks and support the cause of making democracy more fair, why don't you follow the Twitter account they created, which is at MapmakerGame. There, there's a link to their Kickstarter page, too. So to the LaFair siblings, thank you for your work. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Pete Buttigieg. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Stay Tuned is produced in association with Stitcher. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.